good morning, everybody. Welcome to Daybreak. I am your host, Mark Coxon. And as always, well, wait a second. As always, I am not. Jared Hillman was not able to be here today. So he's opening a new office in, uh, in Winnipeg. And so congratulations, Jared, and congratulations, Winnipegians, I guess, maybe, maybe that's the word, um, for having a Hillman AV office in your area. But fear not, I'm not here alone, AV Tweeps. Uh, you're not going to have to just listen to me. Um, I do have a guest. I do have a guest this morning, which is why I wanted to make sure uh, that we brought you an episode of Daybreak today. And my guest today is a gentleman I met at a um, workplace conference uh, networking event um, when we used to be able to do those, when we could go someplace in person. And his name is Samuel Liberant. Samuel, how are you this morning? I'm excellent. <laughs> how are you doing? I, you know, I am, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And I'm really excited to have you on the show because, um, you know, we went to this little workplace kind of networking event. There were some commercial real estate agents there. There were kind of some consulting firms, architects, folks like that. And I know um, Tangram, the company I work for, you know, we hosted it in our office downtown. And I think I got to speak for four or five minutes just on, you know, the interplay of tech and, and space. And you and I were able to have a, a brief conversation after that, kind of over some, over some snacks. And uh, I was super engaged by, um, you know, kind of what you do and the conversation that we had. And so, um, you know, as our podcast has taken a turn more towards business and change management, and especially right now in a time where, you know, all businesses are kind of in this flux and interim, I was like, wow, I wonder if I wonder if I could get Samuel on the show. And you said yes, like. I'm always surprised when people say yes to come on the show. Uh, it's your charm. It's your charm. Yeah. Yeah. See, look, there, there it is. Third, another, another third party confirming, confirming it. Well, we do something kind of interesting here. You know, so, on some podcasts, they, they come in and they let people control their own narrative. They come in and they say, you know, tell us a little bit about you. And they cherry, they let people cherry pick things. I do things a little different in that we, we do this thing called profiled. So, um, I'm profiled. What I do is I typically look over your LinkedIn profile a little bit, which is what I did before you came on the show. So if you got an alert that Mark Coxon was on your LinkedIn profile, I was, um, but <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit. The, the one thing that I noticed right away, and I think anybody who went to your profile on LinkedIn would notice um, your background. So your background is in change management. Um, you actually went to the Change Management Institute, and you went there in Sydney. So you're from Australia. How did how did how did you get into change management, and then how did you get here to the to California? Oh, thank you. Yeah, good question. Well, uh, I'm Australian by choice, meaning that uh, I grew up mostly in Mexico and Australia, and I went to Australia when I was 21. Okay. Um, back in 2001, and I went there to study. I did my master's degree in aviation management and I always wanted to work for an airline and that's what I did. And I ended up in technology and I was very involved in how technology projects were delivered. I learned a lot about that. But the one thing that intrigued me was that people needed to do something differently as a result of new technology being implemented. And Soon enough, I realized that there was more around communication, engagement of employees for a successful project to be had. So 
it got me interested in facilitating dialogue, engaging with others and learning how to influence and help others influence other people so that they can work differently. And I got very involved in a culture change program at a bank after that uh, with a chief information officer. And the goal there was to get the tech employees more in tune with the end customer so that whenever they develop their systems, um, they can do it with a customer in mind. And so at that point, I was like, wow, I've done so many things. I did executive coaching, facilitation, and technology, a little bit of informal education. I was wondering, what's the field that integrates all those? And it happened to be change management in my, in my mind back then. And so I joined the Change Management Institute, the New South Wales chapter, and I led the mentoring program. I did my training. I found a wonderful mentor. And from then, I simply went on change management gigs at a transformation project. And I came to the U.S. for another type of change instead of technology, business process and all that. It was a workplace change. So helping people transition from offices and cubicles into flexible work environments. And ever since, so it's been now six years, I've been engaged uh, at the intersection of behavioral science, technology, work design, and space design. You you have just become my new hero, just to say, just to say. <laughs> no, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, some of the things that you're talking about, um, you know, I, I came from a you know, I came from a background where I wasn't a technology kid, right? Like I wasn't the kid who took apart his radio. I wasn't the kid that was building computers in his basement. I mean, my first computer, I dumped the BIOS because I didn't think it was important for the computer to run, right? And then I, I literally bricked the computer and could never get it to work again. Um, and so for me to be in, in technology, even, you know, as my career um, is very strange to me. I always thought I was going to be a veterinarian in a zoo or I was going to be working for the game and fish department as a wildlife biologist. Um, I loved animal behavior, but what I found out, um, what I found out over time was I loved people. And, um, you know, I kind of reluctantly as a shy kid got drawn into waiting tables to pay through college. I started to learn a lot about people and those skills translated really well when I came into technology sales because I was a neophyte as well. I didn't know a lot about the technology. I learned a lot about it, but I wasn't, it wasn't native to me. And so I always had this kind of talent of bridging the gap between the technical know-how and the person sitting across from me in a unique way that I didn't come from that technology perspective. So to hear you say that, uh, I guess technology drove you, you know, your love of technology and of, and of people kind of drove you into this change management thing is very, very interesting to me. So it's a, that's a really cool, it sounds like a great journey and a perfect place for you to, you know, to leverage, to leverage your skill set in particular, you know, talking about workplace, because you mentioned workplace and your evolution, uh, you know, of coming into more of a, a workplace uh, environment when you came to the United States and really talking about how we, how we utilize open space versus closed spaces um, to get the, the best performance out of, out of people or help people get the best performance. Um, you know, with your background in human behavior and, and all that, what, what do you believe is the largest challenge in this new kind of hybrid workplace, because our workplace is changing again, right? I just did a talk on this yesterday for a, for a launch week conference. 
about hybrid work environments are actually, to me anyway, um, a lot tougher than either an in-person or a full remote. You know, in-person, everybody's there. It's, we've done that forever. We kind of understand what that is. Remote, we were thrust into, um, but it was very, you know, person device centric, one person, one device coming into a cloud platform. That's pretty easy to figure out. But now when we're going to have, you know, half the people in the office, half the people at home still, you know, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge in that? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's true. I, I, you know, when I came to the U.S., I was placed on the first and largest activity-based workplace program in the United States at the time. There was about 13,000 moves and offices uh, for Amgen. And this was quite a, um, the same question was posed. Uh, what will happen to flexible workplace practices because of the introduction of unassigned seating and, and flexible work environments? And now with the pandemic, it's interesting because we went from being perhaps a lot of us in one cubicle or one office to a one space at home. So we're still operating from the one single type of setting. So in that way, things have not changed. And with a hybrid, it, it, it could mean something different for different people. So hybrid could mean combining the remote work and office work to your point. So blending in the office work with the remote work. Um, in the American context, I think that's valuable because it, it speaks to the sense of autonomy that it seems like a, a value uh, that Americans cherish and about managing your own time, et cetera. And it could uh, increase freedom, the sense of freedom. But also it does, the model could look different in different organizations. You could have scenarios where uh, you have on-site presence of like a skeletal staff uh, and others are they can come in and out as they please, uh, within reason anyway, or agree. Uh, <laughs> <standard> or, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You could have seen that, I've spoken to a client and they were mandating who was going to be on-site and who was going to be off-site. So for example, that, that could be their model of, of what hybrid means. And uh, you know, another one is rotation. So you can have a space with people coming in and out different times of day. And again, hybrid could mean quite a few things to different spaces. But I think one of the biggest challenges is to understand what is what is hybrid in a particular context and what's the perspective that people are choosing to solve that problem. Is it a short-term or long-term conversation? And how does it align with the business strategy, structure, processes, rewards, and people? Yeah. So, you know, and if, if I were to start with what I think is the, the biggest challenge is that lens is the question around what is the future of work and office versus what is the work of the future? What uh. is the work that we are going to be focused on? And therefore, what's the best enabling work environment to support that work? And if you look at those different ways, uh, rather, question, if you pose those questions, the same question, but differently, you may get different results. Yeah, I I like that reframing of what is what is the you know what is the work of the future as opposed to the future of work. I, I like that 
I like that reframing because I think, you know, I think we have a lot of that conversation going on in society. Like, you know, what are, you know, what is the value, uh, you know, of, of each individual worker is automation going to replace certain jobs? Should we have universal income? We're like, we're already thinking about these things in other ways, but you know, I think you're right. I think this idea that, um, I think this idea that we're trying to return to something that was there before may be the stumbling block to, to making any progress and getting things going forward because maybe where we're going isn't where we were, right? I mean, that whole idea of maybe returning to that scenario isn't, isn't the goal. Um, it, for me, one of the interesting things you said, you know, when you, when you were talking earlier about your, your kind of um, introduction into change management and you were working in technology and you were helping engineers design systems that worked for the users themselves and work for people. Do you think that that can be sometimes the biggest challenge in a workplace or a, or a company environment where, um, like you said, certain companies see hybrid certain ways. Do you think that they're, um, do you think that they're always seeing it through their employee lens or are they seeing it through a business lens? And is that maybe part of the problem? You know what I mean? Like if, you know, if I say, mm. well, these people stay home based on their role and these people come into the office based on their role, we're defining things by rule, by roles and responsibilities, but we're not taking into account, does that person mm -hmm. work effectively from a home office? I don't care what their role is. Do they do their best work in that environment? So is there, is there something to be said for an organization looking at not just the roles and responsibilities, but where do my people individually, based on their personalities and their habits, where do they individually do their best work? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so I think two things. One is, and I'm reading a book by Jeffrey Schwartz called Work Disrupted. It's brilliant, by the way. Okay. And the, there's oftentimes the focus on cost. So how can we improve our cost structure as it relates to real estate? Um, that's one lens. The other one is, what's the value that could be generated from this decision? Um, what are the options and opportunities and what's possible in our environment and how can we how can we use what's available to us to ignite the potential and 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 achieve the outcomes that we seek and the other one is about meaning making and sense making if you think of it we're still making sense i mean you and i having this conversation we're trying to make sense of things and it, you know when that is the per one of the purposes of tackling a problem the solutions look a little bit different now um, you could have a combination of let's focus on the cost on the value that a hybrid in this instance uh, workplace option can give us but also what is it what's the impact of that how can it help us become more impactful a, as a business and generate more meaningful work for us so very different probably outcomes that that will be seen as a result of those different lenses um, the other thing is how we look at work. Is, is work a one single unit of work throughout the day or is it different types of activities and tasks? So if I look at it, it as a single unit, I could just easily say, can I do this work at home? And now if I have meetings and I have focused work and I have to review documents or write documents or explore different sites, 
that's already different types of activities that could potentially require different types of environment that could support that. Add to that personal circumstance. So some people have great houses where they can simply go to another room and perform a focused activity. Other people also have those great houses, but they have other people in them as well, or much smaller houses. So you also have a personal circumstance kicking in. And I think companies would benefit to engage their employees and understand what's the context that's where their employees are operating from and what are some of the possibilities and choices that they can give them so that they can make the best decision of where to go based on the particular task that they're focused on versus the whole work day. Yes. If that makes sense. No, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I know for me, you know, for me personally, and I've read some of the architect studies and stuff too, but just going on personal experience, which is anecdotal and not very scientific, but um, going on personal experience, I mean, you know, I live, I live in a four bedroom house in Southern California. You would think that there would be plenty of space in a four bedroom house to find different places to do different modes of work. Um, there aren't. I have three children. Um, my three kids are here most of the day, if not all day, doing remote learning and school and all of those things. Um, you know, my wife, my wife lives here too. Obviously, she does. Uh, <laughs> she does marketing. She does marketing events, and so that industry has pretty much been on hold. So she's here most of the time, as well. Um, so there are a lot of things going on during the course of the day. And, uh, you know, the two places I really have that are dedicated to work um, are a hallway desk kind of in the loft area, you know, of the house in a hall um, or the kitchen table for the most part. And, you know, those are really the only two places I can go to. And so, you know, there's always somebody coming through those. They're public kind of, you know, trans transitory spaces within the home, right? They're not places you can shut a door. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's very interesting, you know, just to like, okay, well, I don't have those spaces. And I noticed one of the other interesting things I noticed with a lot of the, um, a lot of the studies that were out there, um, certain, cert, there's a, I guess a misconception, one of the misconceptions that I saw really come out of this whole thing that would be that younger people had an easier time with remote work because they were digital natives and were used to the remote tools more than perhaps the older generation of the workforce was. But what a lot of those studies have found is because of the communal living that younger people sometimes have with roommates or sharing space or still living at home or those things, that actually that was a more difficult transition for them, despite their, their uh, affinity for technology, the space itself became the problem, right? And mm. for me, even transitioning between tasks, you know, this chair in the kitchen right now is a podcast chair. In two hours, this will be a, a uh, design chair for designing a remote learning system that I'm working on. Later in the day, this will be a uh, sales funnel review chair for going through numbers with part of my executive team. Um, you know, so there, there's no change of environment for me, right? To mm -hmm. change those modes. And so sometimes I, I think, um, you know, I'm a real fan of this idea that that, uh, you know, we need some of those transition times or that certain environments can signal yeah. certain things to certain people. And so I like this idea of, of what you're talking about, of, of people really rethinking, you know, kind of that environment. When we talked about, you know, when we talked before, I'm going to bring this around to another question. So when we talked before, hmm. um, we talked about, and I'll let you explain this concept, but I'm going to, I'm going to tease it here. You mentioned skill and will. 
Um, mm -hmm. So you were talking about humans and you were saying there's, you know, skill and will as factors in their productivity. So the skill of the person, the will, their will to do the work. Do you think environment, now that we're talking about this, do you think environment is a third part of that that really helps people unlock productivity? Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, and another great book that I have been reading is called Willpower Doesn't Work by Benjamin Hardy. And he is just brilliant, I, I, very, very insightful. And um, he does speak to designing spaces to facilitate a mental state to do a task. So that's willingness. And he really brings in a, a dimension that I often heard of, but I never really quite understood how to put in practice. And here's how it goes. I could want to go to the gym because of various reasons. And so uh, I can willingly go and sign up to the gym and I could be skilled. Uh, so I have a trainer and they tell me how to do my uh, exercises. So we have those two components there. Now the question is, I'm paying this membership, what will get me to the gym quicker? What environmental changes do I need to get me to the gym quicker? Is it a buddy, perhaps? Is it, and my, I have a teacher, James Garrett, uh, you know, he's brilliant at, at, at giving some examples. Because I just put on my workout clothes at night and that's what I go to sleep in. So I'm reducing the time that it takes for my mind to regret <laughs> and say, mm, maybe not today. So all I need to do is put my shoes on. And I thought, that's a brilliant idea. So what I started doing is, and I'll be honest with you, in the pandemic, I'm not sure I dressed for success <laughs> during my meetings. And I really wanted to start taking breaks, to your point, being in the one space, going from one activity to the other, not having the water cooler moment. I needed some sort of break and different stimulation. And I, I noticed that I had to change clothes in order to go out. Mm. And that three, four minutes, my mind said, not too hard. The brain goes, if it's too hard, you avoid it. So I started then shifting and getting dressed, ready to go out. So the only thing I needed to do at 12 o'clock was put on my shoes and leave. And so there's different things that we can do in the environment to outsource some of our behaviors. And that is the whole, the whole premise behind using your environment creating some nudges for you, facilitating um, behaviors at a point where if you didn't, it, it just takes it a little bit longer. Another example is if I were to put my chocolate box, because I'm trying to avoid chocolate upstairs if I have a two-bedroom house, yeah. and far away from me, and I need a chocolate, you know, my brain will say, I need to do a bit of effort to go there, so maybe I won't. Same thing with a phone. Imagine if you leave your phone far away from your bedside on another room overnight, in the morning, it's more unlikely that I will get up straight and, you know, for the phone. I will stay in bed and I will probably do other things. So, again, how can you shift some of your space, uh, environmental uh, environment, rather, to support some of the behaviors that you want to? In the workplace, uh, one of the things that I remember at Amgen, we created library spaces for people to go and do silent work. And often than not, we had workshops. And I remember uh, I used to ask people, you know, what happens if you go to the library setting 
uh, and you want to approach a colleague. So can you tap them on the shoulder? And you don't, you know, it says there do not speak. So can you tap them on the shoulder instead and, you know, to get their attention? And people will say, yeah, of course you can. And away, let's, let's just remind ourselves, what is the library for? Why do you go to the library in the first place? So that no one interrupts you. So is it okay even if you're starting to interrupt someone? Well, no, because the purpose of a library is to do some quiet work removed from people. What happens if you design and you put a library right next to where everyone, all your colleagues are? Then it's probably more likely for people to approach each other. But what happens if you start creating distance? So when you're designing spaces, what's the, you know, what is even the spacing between some of the settings? And is it serving the purpose? You know, um, for, for, so is it serving the intended purpose? Um, another situation might be in the emergency room and for nurses. Maybe you do require the proximity of the respite space there because it's an emergency and you may need someone very quickly and it would be okay and appropriate to interrupt them. So again, context is really important here, but thinking about the environment and how it could support some behaviors, I think it's probably very, very useful. It's really hard to change when your environment is negative. Think about a negative workplace yeah. with bad vibes. Even if you have the best willpower and all the skills to think positive, it's really hard if your environment doesn't support that. Yeah, I love that. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been trying to, um, you know, uh, in my spare time, whatever spare time that is, uh, with all the things that I'm doing <laughs> right now. But in my in my spare time, I've been working on I've been working on. You're talking about books. I've been working on a book myself, actually. Um, and uh, the book I'm working on is is the physics of the workspace. And um, what I've done is I've taken some of these kind of things, and you just mentioned one that was very interesting. Um, uh, you know, likening the way that we work to uh, you know, there's an, a workforce has an inertia. They have they have an existing momentum and motion in a certain direction. Um, that there's always this equal and opposite pull, like like you're talking about. You know, I can make a space hyper flexible, but then the the reliability or the consistency, you know, maybe it's harder to use. Maybe I create, you know, different scenarios where people have to get into things. So there's always this kind of push and pull. I can make a space private, but now maybe it's not as collaborative. Make a space super collaborative and open, but now I can't do deep focus work, right? Like there's always this kind of pendulum that's swinging as we push more towards one side and another. Um, but when you're talking about the shoes, um, I was <laughs> I was thinking about one of the examples I'm I'm pushing on right now is is the idea in physics of potential energy. You know, the ball at the top of the hill has more potential energy than the ball at the bottom, right? The the smallest nudge tips it into action, whereas the one at the bottom, you have to do a lot of work to push it all the way up the hill. And so right. thinking of what you're saying in, in kind of like that physics world form, it's like, how do we create, how do we create um, you know, this this cliff that's easy to just kind of push ourselves over so that we roll down into the activity that we want, right? Like the the shoes. I put on my shoes, I'm out the door. Um, if I got to go upstairs and put everything on, that's that's a very interesting it's a very interesting concept. I like that a lot. And I think for people who are, you know, designing, designing new spaces, it's something really, really to think about mm, with, um, yeah, with the people side. And I know this wasn't, you know, with the people side of, of what you do, um, you know, a big part of when you're talking about, you know, teams and we're earlier, you were saying, you know, you know, we can break the work down into the actual physical tasks and can they be done at home or somewhere else? Yes. 
then you get into this thing, is that the best place to do them or does that actually get the best result? The task can be accomplished, but is it the best result or the best way for it to be accomplished? When we're talking about um, kind of this hybrid environment, do you think there's a divide between seeing somebody digitally and seeing somebody in person? I don't know if this is in your area or not. I know I didn't. I know I didn't ask you this before. So I, if you're on the spot, I apologize. Or if you feel, <laughs> or if you don't feel qualified to answer, that's fine. But do you think, like for for building trust for those type of things, do you think there's a way that um, that a way to design space or technology to where you kind of help, I guess, um, mitigate? the issues that would happen from somebody coming in remotely versus two people being in the room together. If I'm in the room with you and we're talking, we're having this face-to-face -face interaction, we're having this chemical exchange that happens through neurotransmitters and all these things. We build trust, we see each other, we know each other. I know I'm gonna pass you later in the day and if I owe you something, I'm gonna have to get it to you and I don't wanna have that. I, I have that um, expectation of producing what we talked about. Whereas, you know, I feel like sometimes in the, in the virtual world, perhaps some of that reciprocity, some of that accountability and some of that trust may be harder to build. What's your take on that, you know, coming from where you've come from and working with the companies and technology and people? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And we, I remember in my previous company, uh, in BBJ, we brought John Medina and we had a few workshops on understanding what's the difference between interacting digitally and in person. And I'm probably definitely not qualified because I'm not a scientist, but what I, I am a person, so I, I can share with you my personal experience. Yeah, that'd be great. And I, I, <laughs> I do know that um, I don't, currently you are, uh, actually we are both far away from each other. We're using technology to have a conversation and uh, we're not getting a multi-sensorial experience of each other. We're just, I'm just using my eyes and actually I can look you from you know, the chest to perhaps a little bit over your head. And that's all the frame that I get and same with you. So in first thing I would say is that I'm using my eyes to give me a lot of data about you given the limited information that I have. I don't know your body, I cannot see your body body language, we're not in a particular environment, we're both seeing the same thing. So that th there's no artificial intelligence yet that allows us to do that. The other question that I always ask is, are we using the technology to replace or are we using the technology to augment a human capability? And if it is to augment a human capability, will we rely only on the technology or is there a technology with something that we can use, which could be face-to-face? In teams, I think it's a conversation to be had. Yes, on an individual, I could decide that uh, my home is really good for focused work. And that's what I can do. And I can chunk my day so that in particular days of the week when I do decide to stay home, I can do my focused tasks. But for some things, we might decide that we need to meet in person because our roles as they get automated by machines, <laughs> they give us space to interpret more, to be more, uh, to, to focus on interpreting data, on listening, on building empathy, on collaborating. All those are skills that I question whether we can rely on technology and digital spaces to really 
augment that capability. Empathy comes with sensing. There's a lot of senses that going on, uh, that go on when you when you try to build empathy and listening to someone. So it is a question mark for me. I don't know that we've reached that that phase where you have maybe you have now Googled uh, the, the, the Google uh, what is it uh, Google goggles or or yeah glass Google glass yeah those those ones yeah exactly the the glass that you can perhaps see what other people see but to get to a point where you could artificially sense what you would in person. Yeah. I don't know that we've gotten there yet and I don't know anything can replace it. I was looking, I'm not sure if you're a fan of cooking. I'm definitely not. And I literally just yesterday, I looked at masterclass for sourdough making because a friend of a friend gave me some <laughs> cultures yep. and I said, okay. And one of the things that the lady was saying, and for anyone out there who is a cook, I have no idea about cooking. So hopefully I'm saying this right, but she was saying that, um, at home, if I were to make the bread, it's just a one piece of bread that goes into the oven. It expands and, and it grows and it becomes the bread. At the bakery, they have a lot of breads in the big oven. And she said, it's really important for, it's funny that she said the proximity of each bread loaf to each other improves their growth and how they bake. And I thought, hmm, maybe that's also with people. Maybe our proximity to each other physical proximity within an environment like an oven that supports and you know, flames our growth um, is of benefit. So I, I really do think that, that closeness, proximity to each other, collaboration, empathy, as machines automate so much of our tasks, we'll need to have more of those. And if companies don't focus on strengthening that capability of their people, they may have to play big time catch up in the future. Yeah, I, I agree. When you're talking about the sourdough loaves, I was thinking, uh, you know, geeky, I have some geeky trivia facts too at times. And, and like the, uh, you know, <laughs> you're, if you break apart your bananas from the bunch, they don't, they don't ripen as quickly, right? Like if you leave them all connected and leave them in the bowl, the chemicals that the bananas are releasing, they all ripen much quicker than if you, you break them apart, separate them slightly. Right, that whole idea go. of of <laughs> of this ripening or cooking or things, and and it also reminds me of an old, you know, a C.S. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis quote about you know like a person a person in the fire, you know, a coal in the fire glows red. If you pull it out, it quickly goes black, but when you put it back in the fire, it, it becomes red very quickly again. Right, this whole idea of wow. of um, you know coals in the fire, or bananas or sourdough. <laughs> I, I think that I I I think they're very useful analogies though, because I think we're in this place where um, and this is this is a lead into something I know that you you worked on because we talked about it a little bit. I, I think this gets into um, you know the idea if somebody's thinking about their workforce or thinking about redesigning space. I think this starts to get into um, go out of the personal dynamics and personal productivity into group dynamics and group pro and group productivity, right? And I know um, mm. I know based on talking to you before that you all had kind of done a study. Um, you had done an, an inner workplace study on kind of the type of functions people did at certain times of the day and then mm. kind of mapping that so people knew when maybe to be, best schedule meetings or certain type of activities. Maybe I'm misstating this, but I think I think we talked about this a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about that, like the whole executive function yeah. and when certain tasks were done and how you mapped that out within an organization? Yeah, and that's a great segue, actually. Uh, so thanks for the question. When I was mentioning some of the skills of the future, which are 
complex problem solving, yes. creativity, critical thinking. Um, we cannot do that if we have arousal fatigue. I cannot be at my best if I have one Zoom. So in the pandemic, a lot of us shifted spaces, but I'm not sure that we shifted the way that we work. We were still scheduling the same amount of meetings, if not more, and without any breaks. Yep. And I almost had, the, in my context, I had the need to just be present and available online more so than before. And even my commute time became my work time. And so uh, we, we noticed that as we're trying to support clients, uh, there was a need to reduce arousal fatigue so that we function, so that our executive function is taken care of and the executive function of the brain. Uh, and what we did was, uh, my colleague, uh, Nate Holland, and I at MBBJ Design, we did a bit of a study. And we, we noticed that arousal fatigue um, does erode your executive function. And equally, there's a lot of things that could boost your executive function. And it could be taking breaks. It could be just working with your body's natural schedule. I know that sometimes I don't pay attention to my body and when it's telling me to stop. But just becoming more mindful of that is really important. Also, access to green and vegetation is super important uh, for um, just to, to uh, relax and take care of that executive function. And also improving sleep. So we had a few questions to our group of 20. And the questions were like, what would motivate each other to extract themselves uh, from a really important activity for a break. So what would it take someone to do that? In our group, it ended up being that the sense of permission. You know, do we give each other that permission? Are we kind enough to do that as a, as a team dynamic? It took a while to get to that point, yeah. but that, you know, the, the end point was that. Um, the other one was like, how do I convince myself to still feel productive so that I don't get haunted by the guilt? You know. And the third question was like, what's the environment that what might motivate me to operate that dif differently? And a lot of times it had to be with the people dynamics. So those were our questions and we had our experimental curiosity. And what we did is that we have, a, we, we, well, NBJ has a tool called Rhythm of the Day and it's just a process. And um, we wanted to be the makers of our own evidence. Okay. And so we went in and every one of us just uh, we filled out a survey around the activities we had a map of a house and we chose the spaces in the house where we were performing these activities during the time of day so let's say nine to five and we also recorded our sentiment of each of those activities and our access to green and light so we combined all that data with um uh, and i uh oh with our uh body clocks as well and we presented that data as a, to the group and we had a workshop around it from that came the realization of oh we need to do something to take care of ourselves so each one took an experiment and some people just took a pause and they downloaded an app called calm and that gave them sure. you know, a little bit of uh, relief and uh, soothing and relaxation during stressful times I myself took a mid-afternoon siesta, so I chose 20 minutes at 2 p.m. Yeah. every day, and it was amazing. I, you know, it was just the right amount of time. It's actually 27 minutes. It takes seven minutes to fall asleep and 20 minutes to sleep, so I took 27 minutes siestas. 
another colleague of mine, um, I remember she used to take uh, breaks between, he used to take breaks between meetings. So he used to schedule his Outlook. He found that there's a functionality in Outlook to finish your, your meeting five hours before the hour. And yep. so he made sure he scheduled all those so that he takes a break. And so we just had a group reflection on it. And the interesting bit is that week one, yeah, we, we had fun. The question was, how can you stretch it and take it forward? So we did that with a group. We came back and people realized it's actually quite hard to keep the momentum. Week one, it was all fun and games and experiments. And yes, we had it. Week two was hard because yeah. we easily reverted back to our ways of working. So back to the environment question, what in the environment, yeah. what around your, your social agreements and your social priorities need to shift? Yeah. And need to, you need to remind yourself of shifting over time. And the last question that we asked them, well, if we were to do this continuously uh, for four weeks with this intention, will you feel more productive? And the answer was yes. You know, I think I will. Is it going to be hard? Of course, it will hard. But it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful experiment just to understand a lot of it is in the story that we tell ourselves as a team. Yes. And a lot of it is in our dynamics and how we interact with each other and the level of respect that we have for each other. And it's beyond the actual break. It, it's our, our permission to give ourselves a chance to just take care of ourselves in service of becoming more effective yeah very well, interesting well earlier you <laughs> said you weren't a scientist but now i'm not so convinced that you're not actually <laughs> just to say that um to, to run an experiment create data i mean i think a lot of us would love would love you know that whole sandbox piece and i think that's where you know sometimes we get lost in theory and you mm. know so you have to you know i read a book called um Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. I don't know if you've ever read any books by Chip and Dan Heath, but they also, you know, moments that, you know, the power moments, uh, there's a bunch of different things that they've, they've written. But one of the things they talked about in decision-making was um, finding a way, they called it to ooch. It's a very Southern word, I guess, ooching, like to, to take a small, <laughs> to take a small little step in that direction, to just ease yourself into something, to ooch into something. And so if you want to test a theory, if you think it has value, what's, what's, it's almost kind of like the MVP uh, theory for, you know, companies, the minimum viable product. What's the, what's the smallest investment we could make, or what's a small investment we could make in this theory to test it in a way that would be valuable to see if we want to make a full commitment to it, right? Which you guys did with a week. And then how could we stretch that into two? And it would, do we think there's value in it long-term if we did it four or mm -hmm. five, six? Mm -hmm. And then if you do think there's value in it, then you go in and say, okay, what, what changes would we have to make it as an organization? Like you said, an environment, et cetera, in order to make that happen long-term because we do believe there's value mm. in it. So that, that whole mm -hmm. idea is very interesting to me. I mean, it's a very, it's a very cool thing that you guys did. Um, I, I love, I'll, I'll, if, I think you have a link to it right online. Um, I'll, I do. It's on my LinkedIn profile. Uh, cool. and I'll yeah, link it in there, the show. There's a link to it. I'll, oh, I'll link it in the show you. description too, because I, I, you mentioned a couple books and people always ask me at the end of each of these shows, <laughs> most, most of the Twitter and LinkedIn feedback I get is, are you running a, you know, do you have a site where all these books are, you know, where you've put all these books down? So you've mentioned, you've mentioned <laughs> willpower doesn't work by Benjamin Hardy. And then you also, uh, you also mentioned another one, which was work disrupted. 
by Jeff Schwartz. Yeah. And so I'll make mm -hmm. sure I um I link to both of those in the bio as well. So, you know, you 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 make me think, uh, and I'm assuming a lot of the or a lot of the audience might be designing space. I'm already thinking about space, and testing as a change management tool or as a design tool is really useful. And in our with our last client, what we did is that we had a we designed a showcase environment where we could show people what the future workplace will be looking like. And at the time, my proposition was, well, it's useful to use it as a showcase, but that just communicates people what will be. How about we bring in people to explore and work in this space for a month, and we use sensors, and we use data, and we use surveys and focus groups to understand what was your experience what support might you need, if at all, if we we're all to shift to this space? And it was really useful to have these exercises because even the team that was implementing the project, the real estate, a, uh, the real estate group, the architects, the technology people, the HR people, uh, finance, legal, the people who were in the project were learning more about what would it take to implement this? What would it take to really engage our people and take this to the next level beyond just the installation of the workplace? So tests really do work, especially when you're designing these big, large, audacious programs of work. Yeah, yeah that idea of, um, well, I think also, I think it, it, uh, it exposes our assumptions, right? Like, yeah. Or, or exposes the diversity of the workforce because we liked it, we built it, and then all of a sudden somebody else, mm -hmm. you know, that uses it tells you has different feedback. All of a sudden you're like, wow, wow, I never would have seen it through, through that lens or through that perspective. And uh, mm. you know, we're talking about books. So I'll, I'll leave with I'll leave with one more one that I really love. You know, just being a technology person, but but being someone who's who's very you know. Uh, has an affinity for animal behavior and human psychology and, you know, uh, is, uh, the design of everyday, everyday things, which I'm sure you've probably, you may or may not have read, but I'm sure you probably have, uh, by Don Norman, um, about, oh. you know, uh, discoverability, uh, of things mm -hmm. and about, uh, affordances, you know, features of something that tell you what it do, what it does and how intuitive is that to an end user, you know, and, and his, his point mm. in the book is the problem with most, technology is it's designed by engineers um, but most people don't think like engineers so you know it's right. designed by somebody who doesn't think like the person who's actually going to be using it you know right and and uh, i think we have that in the workplace too right like we we have to be mm. able to you know you can you can design a space from an architect's perspective on what you think is beautiful and and uh you know all the theory that you've put into place but at some point you know uh sometimes, you know, that theory becomes splatter on the wall, you know, when the people actually yeah. get into space and then you have to figure out, okay, yeah. how do the people affect the theory or how do we tweak that slightly to actually mm. work within this population or this group of people or this type of vertical mm -hmm. or environment. And so I love that idea of, of, uh, the testing, the testing, watching yeah. observation is our best tool, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah observation of the context, observation of the environment, observation of self in the context, in the environment, all very useful. You know, the um, 
and even you know just to expand on that example with the engineers, then then a pandemic hits, and so the requirements could also be shifted. Yes. So one of the examples that um, Jeff was using in in the book was Zoom. That initially Zoom, the clients were the CIOs of you know of Zoom. So yes. they were presented with a solution, and and then after the pandemic hit, and you had all these security issues where people Zoom bombing and all that, the customer base became very different. The customer base was first time users, and so all the strategy shifted almost in overnight. Yes. And so again, um, there's some things that happen in the environment that shift that also force us to shift. And they're just ever, they're continuous and uncertain changes that are happening in the world of work. And so as designer of environments, I think our challenge is to design not just physical, but also help design mental environments um, with very clear signposts that help people be guided, that help people be calmer, that help people become more connected so that they can look and focus on what's possible and get closer to that and take action and navigate all this continuous, continuous change is just hitting us and will probably hit us more. So calm and connected, I think are really useful ways of, um, or considerations to be had when looking at designing spaces for people to operate effectively. Well, that's awesome. And I honestly think, I think that's a perfect place to round, to round up the discussion. I could talk to you for hours, honestly. Um, I know, <laughs> I know even when I called you to ask you about the podcast that, you know, it, it turned into a, a three minute question into a, into a 40 minute conversation that we have, but um, no, I really thank you, Samuel. Thank you so much for, um, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to link uh, in the, so for everybody listening, I'm going to put a link to uh, the books. Um, I'm also going to put a link to uh, Samuel's study that he did and uh, also to his LinkedIn profile in case you uh, could use his services somewhere. Um, he's obviously, he's obviously very bright um, human, human centered <laughs> designer. <laughs> so um, yeah, feel free to connect. Um, he's on LinkedIn. I'll link his profile. Samuel, thank you so much for coming on early in the morning. You're in California with me, so we both we both got up at six. To, we both got up at six this morning to do this. I appreciate it. We did, and I'm so thankful to you. This has been such fun. Uh, I really like this, and uh, thank you for everyone. Yeah. All right, everybody. This has been uh, Daybreak. Look at the show notes for all of those links, and we'll see you next week. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that.